What's going on, guys? Today, I'm sitting down with Cassim uh, Hansen, and we're going to talk all about range of motion. Um, so first off, Cassim, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's great to have you here. Can you give a little bit of an introduction for maybe people who aren't familiar with you and some of your work? So I am the founder of N1 Education. Um, so basically, I teach biomechanics and I do research on biomechanics and training variables uh, in-house. So I've been coaching, oh, I don't want to date myself here, but you know, over a good 20 years, um, everything from Olympic athletes to Olympia athletes to like special forces programs and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, the latter part of my career has just really been focused on trying to further the research as I've kind of come to, we'll say the pinnacle of my own education in terms of running out of things, running out of books to read, running out of people to learn things from, and now trying to contribute and give back through contributing to research ourselves and also advance our, our programming. So um, that's kind of who I am and what I do. I mean, who I am as a person is, is fairly boring. I'm a, I'm obsessed with this stuff. So really, if this stuff doesn't interest you, then you would probably find me pretty boring. But if this stuff interests you, then you would probably find me pretty interesting. <laughs> that's awesome man uh yeah it's it's funny how many little like rabbit holes you can go down with uh, within the sports science realm especially since lately there's been a lot of crossover um mm -hmm. with just even like behavioral sciences and then you look at like the biopsychosocial model and how psychology is kind of permeating its way into sports sciences and stuff like that so that's uh that's awesome man yeah so as much as we try and segregate things it seems like the more we find that like everything is all inclusive, but it's just like, it's just like you're dialing the knobs to a different level for one type of athlete for another, but it's not like yeah. these athletes, this is important and everything else is just, it's just BS. I wish we could have simplified it that way, but that's just not the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause actually like, I, I always find that the more experience I get as a coach, the more that I've found results kind of come from what you're doing outside of the gym as well. And then it's like, okay, well, how do I get them to go to bed a little earlier? How do I get them to maybe track their sleep? How do I get them to track their hydration? And, and then you start looking at like the behavior literature and then it's like, okay, do they have any sort of like pre-existing issues with disorder type eating behavior? What's their relationship with it? And it's just like, and then you just have to keep going and going and going and going. And then none of that really has to do with rep sets or anything like that. So it's, it's pretty, pretty cool um, when you really dive into it. Yeah. I think what's really cool is often when we have a certain population of people is, is that a lot of times the, the variables that are important, those people tend to naturally already be like, we'll say over amplifying those and paying really fine detail to those. So oftentimes that population, the thing that they need to focus on is the things that stereotypically aren't associated with them because yeah. people come yeah. in with like, well, I've read and I've been doing all of the things that are associated with whether it be hypertrophy or powerlifting, strength training, whatever. And they've just been neglecting all of the things that aren't like the coolest, most sexiest topics in that, you know, in that genre of competition or athleticism. Yeah, no, 100%. And uh, I mean, I feel like that's definitely another rabbit hole that that's, uh, that's pretty interesting to get into. But I guess to start us off, I kind of wanted to couch this conversation in something. So um, mm -hmm. I found about, out about you probably in the last couple of months. Uh, and I've really, really liked how you convey a lot of your, a lot of your content. It's very much like principle driven versus here's this technique that I'm using. It's like, here's the principle and here's how you can apply it, which 
I think anyways, expands the, the scope of application, which is really cool. But one of the things that I've heard you talk about, which really caught my interest was uh, range of motion. So specifically when we're talking about, you know, is shorter range of motion or longer range of motion or larger range of motion going to be better for, for muscle growth? And I mean, it sounds pretty intuitive because you're like, okay, well, if you squat deeper, you get more stretch, you get more time under tension, more mechanical tension, it's going to be better. And generally that's what the research shows. But then when you kind of look into it and you kind of go a couple layers deeper, there's a lot more complexity there. Even just, it's like, are we talking muscle range of motion? Or are we talking about exercise range of motion? Are we talking about like the functional differences between this person versus that person and how we're actually executing the exercise? And so it really becomes an interesting conversation. And that's kind of the, the main reason why I wanted to have you here. So could you kind of, I guess, just sort of open up that conversation um, and, and kind of go where with, with, uh, with the conversation, basically where you will. Yeah. So with the range of motion, the first thing to always try and qualify is, is, well, what do you, what are you, you know, referring to? Is it the exercises range of motion or is the muscles range of motion? And knowing that automatically will change how you, how you look at the research, right? So if we take, for example, you know, a squat, just because you get to the bottom of a squat and then you get to the top of the squat, it's like, well, okay, that may be getting a fully lengthened quad at the bottom for some people, if they're literally getting to full knee flexion for other people, not. So you have to look at, well, what are we standardizing there? Is it just an arbitrary knee angle in the study, or are we actually looking at, at full knee flexion? And then what muscles are we measuring? Cause if we're measuring the rec fem, well, it doesn't go through as much range of motion as the other quadriceps and whatnot. So it's really important to figure out, you know, when we're looking at the data is, are like, as most of the research looks at things where they're overloading the bottom, like squat and bench press made up the majority of the range of motion research when they were comparing full range to partial range of motion. And so they were, they were only comparing the partial, like if you do a partial squat at the top, you're cutting off the most loaded portion of the range. So that's like the most loaded portion of the muscle. So in addition to knowing whether or not it's, you know, the muscles range of motion or an exercise or how much of the muscles range of motion does do the exercises in the study actually cover. The next thing is just like, well, if we're looking at partials are, are those being impacted by the fact that we're taking and we're comparing one part of the exercise that includes the most difficult part and taking another part of the exercise that doesn't include the difficult part versus saying only comparing the difficult part, like comparing the bottom, a partial at the bottom of a squat versus a partial at the top of the squat, two drastically different things. So what we do in terms of qualifying range of motion is we look at exercises and we look at what does that exercise give in terms of where it takes the muscle in terms of it's like whole capacity of range of motion, right? So if it's any sort of, you know, press or squat or whatever it may be, we look at it as how much does this lengthen the target tissue? And then within the range of motion to the ad exercise provides is where is that hardest or more most mechanically challenging, or is it fairly challenging throughout all of that? And then we can start quantifying, you know, what it would actually mean to compare a full range of motion of that exercise versus other exercises, or what about partials in that exercise, a lengthened versus a shortened partial, you know, versus the full range, et cetera. Um, and looking at that. And then, like you said, you want to go into, you know, as many nuances as here. So I'll let you kind of guide that, but there's everything from, you know, stretch mediated hypertrophy concerns to the difference in hemodynamics, which is basically, you know, in certain positions, we might be able to push more blood into the muscle in between reps, which can dictate how much fatigue we accumulate and can affect the physiological outcome, you know, of a given set when it's focused on one resistance curve or one particular portion of the range versus another. 
Yeah, I think that was a really great uh, sort of explanation to, to kind of kick things off. So you said a lot of things that were, were, were pretty interesting. And, and one of the things that I think um, definitely bears discussing is force profiles, right? Mm-hmm. And specifically with, with relation to range of motion. So like you, you mentioned, a lot of the literature looking at range of motion and, and hypertrophic outcomes is based on some of these compound movements. And obviously loading a squat at the top end is going to be very, very different, even in terms of muscular contributions, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's not necessarily a fair comparison. So like, w- what are some examples, I guess, where you may load or prioritize a specific range of motion relative to the exercise that, that, we're, uh, that you're doing? So in general, if we look at, so like there's two, there's basically two different variables that we're looking at here. One is where I'm within a muscle's range of motion working. And then the next is where within that exercise's constraints, the resistance profile is the greatest, if that makes sense. So a good example that I always like to give for this is like, if you do an incline dumbbell bicep curl, right? So where your arm is essentially hanging by your side, the dumbbell, you know, at the bottom position still isn't loading the bicep very much, but because you're in some shoulder extension, we would say that's lengthening the biceps a little bit more. So the biceps are in a lengthened position, but from the resistance profile, it still would be where your, you know, your forearm, you know, your lower portion of your arm is basically parallel to the ground, right. You know, or perpendicular to gravity. So the, the middle of the movement would have the strongest or the, be the most challenging portion from a resistance profile perspective, but the exercise itself would work the relative lengthened portion of the muscles range of motion, considering that we're in a shoulder extended position. And if we wanted to shorten the biceps more, we would go into somewhat of a shoulder flexion position. So what we've been, what we've been able to kind of tweak out is, is that as we gravitate towards the shorter position of a muscle, we tend to decrease the amount of, we'll say DOMS that you're going to get, right? And increase the amount of metabolic output that you're able to get. And what we've seen in the lab is, is part of that is because like, say, if I'm doing something that's in the short position, when I get to the bottom portion of that exercise, there's not so much tension on the muscle that it's basically creating an, you know, an uh, we'll say like a, an internal BFR, if you will, whereas exercises that really challenge the lengthened position seem to have more of an internal BFR quality, meaning that they prevent you from resupplying that tissue with blood and oxygen and removing substrate. So basically the sets get cut a little bit short. Okay. Now, when you add the resistance profile on top of that, that magnifies that even more, because when we look at lengthened based exercises, essentially like a squat is a great example. Once you can no longer get out of the bottom of a squat, there's no partials to be had, right? You know, it's not like you can be like, okay, I got to the bottom of my last squat, like RIR zero RPA 10. It's not like, well, I can come up, you know, three quarters of the way. And then the next one I can come up half the way. It's like, no, once you're done, you're stuck at the bottom and there's no partials to be had, but exercises that are inverse, like a pull down, for example, you know, most people they're really strong in the stretch position of a pull down, you know, when their arm is, you know, up over their head. And as they start to get down towards the body, that's when the exercise is the most challenging. But when you get to the point where you can no longer pull all the way down, you could still go all the way back up and then maybe come down three quarters of the way. And then you could do another one where you could get another partial and another partial and another partial, you know, and the partials would just get smaller and smaller and smaller. So what we tend to focus on is shifting 
when we're focusing a little bit more on, we'll say a metabolic demand, which that could be, okay, I'm working from a conditioning standpoint. Maybe I'm trying to improve nutrient partitioning, you know, get somebody to store more glycogen and whatnot, which, you know, from a, from a programming standpoint, these would be things that you would do to, you know, improve somebody's tolerance to volume in the subsequent phase. So the reason that like, if you are a strength athlete that you would decide like, Hey, I'm going to do these short position exercises, you know, and do this quote unquote, like more pump or metabolic work would be, is it's like, well, the more glycogen I have in the muscle, the more force production I have. And also my, the better tolerance I will have to volume in my subsequent phase. If I kind of get some physiological adaptations to increase that. So we use those short positions and combine them with, you know, shorter, shorter biased resistance curves to drive more of a metabolic demand. And then we shift things towards the lengthened spectrum when we're focusing a little bit more on a hypertrophy outcome where we're really trying to drive the mechanical tension because in the lengthened position, we also have the stretch mediated, stretch mediated hypertrophy mechanisms, which, you know, likely are coming from the Titan and the passive tissues that get a little bit more stretched. And there's also some neurological stuff going on where the nerves are getting compressed. There's a pretty good theory on there of basically how DOMS may be more associated with the compression on the nerve as muscles are getting stretched like that nerve tissue more so than mechanical damage, right. That it might be more related to neuroflammation than the mechanical damage, but all that stuff happens in the extreme stretch position. So we tend to bias, we'll say, you know, whatever volume of exercises that you're going to do, let's just say for a particular body part, let's just say you have, you know, 16 sets for the week, right? If somebody's goal was a little bit more metabolic oriented conditioning, maybe body composition, or they're trying to potentiate tolerance to volume for a subsequent phase, then maybe we do 75% of our work in more shortened biased exercises. But then when we're focusing on more mechanical tension, then we would focus it more on the other spectrum, maybe do 75% lengthened biased exercises. And now when it comes to pure strength, it seems just to be that, you know, you get stronger when you train, like you get stronger in the range that is loaded. Meaning that, you know, if you want to be stronger in the length position, you have to choose exercises that have that profile. Um, and this is something that anecdotally I've seen on myself a ton, in addition to what we see in the research, where it's like in periods where I've been limited to say, like, there's been periods where I've been limited to just being able to use cables for back training and stuff. Like I didn't have anything to really challenge the length and position. And then all of a sudden I have access to something that really challenges the length and position even though I will have gotten overall stronger, like I will have progressed in an exercise that is almost exactly the same movement, but because the profile is different, I massively regress in strength when I have to train that same movement, but with a different resistance profile, because I have gotten weaker. And that's because, you know, strength is so much of it is neurological. And essentially the motor pattern we're getting from an exercise is when to recruit how much as well. So if you're doing an exercise, that's really challenging in the short position and never challenging lengthened position, your body's not getting trained to fire as many of those motor units as possible at the initiation of that exercise, unless you're, you know, intentionally using really explosive, you know, intense, if that makes sense. Um, but if you're doing anything remotely controlled, then you're really going to struggle improving your power output or your strength output in that lengthened position with an exercise that has a resistance profile that's biased to the short position. So if you want to get strong and, you know, if you were looking at it for a lift, you would want to make sure that the resistance profile that you're working in matches the force demand of that lift as close as possible, if that makes sense. So that's kind of an, an, an overview of kind of how we use these things is shortened, more metabolically biased, 
lengthened, more hypertrophy biased, and strength needs to be biased towards whatever the performance outcome that you happen to need is. But, you know, um, there was a prime actually funded a rise study where they did compare using three different strength profiles to basically a single match profile. And they volume equated that. And they did find that doing, um, dividing the volume up in basically thirds provided a better strength outcome than doing one resistance profile that was just closely matched to the muscle. This was an elbow flexion study. Um, so you could say that for strength, there is some benefit of at least having some volume in your program that targets all of those positions. Um, and that may like, you know, obviously I would say you'd partition most of your volume towards what's most specific, but still including a little likely like in your accessories, maybe choosing something that had a different resistance profile than what your primary lifts might be beneficial in terms of your overall strength development, rather than choosing accessories that had a redundant or overlapping resistance profile from what you're doing with your primary lifts. That's really interesting actually, because <clears throat> I find a lot of what you said is, is very intuitive to some degree, but it's, mm -hmm. it's just interesting when you kind of hear like how someone got there. So for instance, you talking about, you know, a certain percentage of training biasing is particular range of motion. Like to me, that's pretty interesting because I haven't necessarily heard anyone talk about it, but like that. And I mean, from a strength perspective, I think a lot of that stuff is pretty intuitive because it's like, if someone has, you know, let's say a chest fall pattern and their hips are kicking back and all they're doing is squatting more and more and more. And it's not like if we've ruled out skill as an issue, we've ruled out, you know, any bracing issues, whatever, then doing more of that isn't going to fix it. And so it's like, okay, well, if their hip, or sorry, if their, if their knee extensors are, you know, insufficiently strong to generate enough force to actually, you know, get up, it's going to have to offload to the posterior chain and the adductors a little bit more. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's like that pattern kind of makes sense. So it's like, what do we need to do? We need to kind of bias quads. So maybe a belt squat or something like that. That's not so hip loaded. So, so something like that would make sense. Then you kind of adjust and say, okay, that actually did help. This is probably a, a good intervention. So let's kind of see where that goes. So, so that definitely makes sense from a, a strength standpoint when it comes to, when it comes to some of those studies, I always find it interesting because it usually, obviously they're going to be done on like a single joint movement. Cause it'd be incredibly hard to actually map that out for, for something like a, a squat or a deadlift or whatever. Um, in terms of varying the resistance profile. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so it's always interesting to see kind of how that translates into, into a little bit more practical types of implementation. But I mean, I, I definitely do feel like that does sort of pan out so long as you're keeping things, you know, fairly consistent in terms of like how they're executing the lift, you know? So it's like, if you're going to do block pulls, cause you're weak at the top end, are you doing block pulls in the right position or are you just kind of getting really good at block pulls because those aren't necessarily the same thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, that, that's super interesting. So in, in terms of um, metabolite accumulation versus like mechanical tension, I, I've heard a lot of really interesting perspectives and I kind of have my own perspective on this, but I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say in terms of, you know, their, their individual contribution to um, hypertrophy. Like, because I've, I've heard a lot of people say that metabolite accumulation is more of a byproduct of mechanical tension as opposed mm -hmm. to an independent driver. Well, one, you can never separate the two, right? Cause you can't create mechanical tension without expending, right. expending yeah. fuel. And so trying, trying to pull, trying to pull these things apart and isolate them is 
we'll, we'll say it's a, you know, it's a you know, fruitless pursuit, you know, per se. Um, now, what a lot of people don't take into account is, is that like hypertrophy is, we'll say it's, it's very low on the evolutionary totem pole in terms of what your body wants to do in response to stress, right? So from a priority standpoint, if you actually, if you look at the physiology as a whole, the number one priority, like first thing is, is like managing like pH and electrolyte balance of the cell. So it just doesn't die. Right. So like, <laughs> that's kind of important, right? Like, no, if the cell dies, it's really hard to hypertrophy it at that point. Right. But the next thing after basically you just manage the electrical chemical portion of it is the energy balance. Right. So basically you have the, like most people, when it comes to, you know, hypertrophy, like the look, one of the main mechanisms they'll look at is the stimulation of the mTOR pathway, right. Which, you know, leads downstream to some protein synthesis. It's not the only one, but it's a, it's a fairly well-studied one. It works in tandem with another, you know, another receptor in protein called you know, AMPK kinase, right. Which is basically an energy sensor. So it's sensing how much ATP do we have? And also how much glycogen do we have available? So it's basically like a dual fuel gauge, if you will. And if it's reading low, mTOR doesn't get turned on. Like you can take all the leucine that you want, you know, and all the protein powder, and you can do all the mechanical tension things in the world, but the cell doesn't shift towards doing any of the protein synthesis things until energy balance is sufficient. Cause basically eight, like when the AMPK kinase switch is on by it shuts off the ability to turn on mTOR. Cause the last thing you'd want to do, it'd be like, you know, it, it, it would be like, Hey, we don't have enough fuel to do, do this. So, but let's burn up the last that we have anyway on something that isn't immediately needed. And then all of a sudden, then the cell would just have this catastrophic energy failure, right? So we, the body has to prioritize, you know, electrical chemical balance, then energy balance. And then after that, then it can do all of these like longer term adaptations, right? So like protein synthesis, like hypertrophy, isn't something that helps you survive today, right? That's a, that's an adaptation that's supposed to help you in the future, right? So it's definitely in terms of the flight or flight, like responses from everything from hormonal to cellular biology doesn't, it's, it's like not an immediate need and it gets pushed back. So what often gets left out is people just forget that in order for the hypertrophy process to actually be going on, the energy process has to like the energy mechanisms and replenishment already have to be resolved, right? Which means that, you know, the better you are at getting fuel into the cell, the better you are at repleting ATP, the better you are at repleting glycogen, then the quicker you will be able to turn on the, you know, the mTOR or whatever hypertrophy mechanisms, right? And the more efficiently they will be able to run. Cause then that's the second part of it is that once you do turn on protein synthesis, it requires energy, right? Like every process of stimulating hypertrophy, every process, like you don't just like, you know, make that, you know, you don't just copy the DNA and the RNA for free. The ribosomes aren't just like, you know, they're not like little socialist proteins. It's like, Hey, you don't need to give us fuel. We'll just combine these amino acids. No charge. No problem. Like that's not the way it works. Like cell, like cellular physiology is a very capitalist system. Everything requires energy. Right. And so when you look at the immediate thing of like, well, okay, if we're looking at just driving the stimulus for mechanical tension, then, you know, doing metabolite stuff is going to look like, well, this doesn't really move the needle in terms of stimulating more mTOR. But 
when we get adaptations that make us better in terms of managing metabolites, being better at generating, replenishing ATP, better at taking up glucose, replenishing glycogen, all of those things, and just being overall more energy efficient, what we see is we're able to run the hypertrophy process earlier, sooner, more efficient that way. And so therefore our potential response to the mechanical tension stimulus is now greater. Right. And so a lot of times you'll have people that have been driving a lot of mechanical tension training and they're just not getting anywhere. And what you look at is you look at all their recovery markers suck, you know, the sleep sucks or digestion sucks or whatever. And all of a sudden you switch them to focusing on, you know, more metabolite style training, more conditioning style training. And what that does is it increases their capacity to replenish cellular energy and to actually fuel those processes. And then all of a sudden, they respond to their next phase of hypertrophy training much better, right? It's just like going back in time and getting, you know, the type of gains that you used to be getting earlier before you basically reach such a high trainability threshold. Um, so our metabolites directly, are they like directly causing like hypertrophy? Like, are they an on switch for that? I would say, well, no, but does that type of training contribute to overall being better at hypertrophy or accumulating more hypertrophy over time, I would say, yes, periodizing in there, like you would be better off periodizing some metabolite phases in your program over the year, rather than, you know, just ignoring that system altogether, because you think that it's not the best way. Just like, you know, if you're a strength athlete, you don't just only do singles, right? Because that's kind of the, that's kind of, you know, a, we'll say a metaphorically, you know, comparison between, you know, looking at the cellular biology, it's like, well, if I'm just, or just want the mechanical tension, that's the most important thing. So I'm only going to go that. Well, unfortunately the cell needs to do more things than respond to mechanical tension. And if we never tell the body to get good at those things, eventually those other things become the bottleneck, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I think probably the most important statement that you made was that uh, the body isn't socialist. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that 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 cracked me up a little bit. Um, it, it's funny actually because that's sort of my perspective as well. Like a lot of the times, I mean, a really great example, I guess, is um, the difference between like the immediate effects. Like, is it directly impacting something versus does it have some sort of downstream signaling effect? Mm -hmm. So, like w one thing that I always kind of say to people sometimes is like cortisol is is a hormone that is most certainly the the highest correlated hormone relative to like hypertrophy because mm -hmm. every time you do that you're going to get a spike in cortisol to some degree because you're you're mm -hmm. getting smashed and it's like does that directly cause hypertrophy well no obviously not but it's kind of part of this sort of broader cascade of changes that sort of happens and it's it is part of that signaling process and so it's like if you remove that what ends up happening you know and and so that definitely makes sense what you're saying now that that's kind of interesting in terms of how you approach um the different bottlenecks so one of the uh one of the things that i did want to ask you about was output and how that might change relative to uh both how, how volume might be adjusted depending on your output and then also how range of motion could potentially allow you to get better training in while still maybe reducing volume to some degree you know, because you, you mentioned like different pro force pro profiles are going to have uh, different benefits, maybe at different times. So if you're intentionally utilizing a specific range of motion for a period to permit, you know, greater growth and greater output for a period, 
versus maybe, you know, some other time where you have a, maybe a different focus, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'll try and chip at these. Remind, remind me if I forget any of them. The first sure. thing I'll throw in there um, was just, we'll just piggyback off that cortisol content is, is that cortisol is basically the strongest correlation to effort and training. Right. So basically more effort, you know, more cortisol. And that's why, you know, it's that, that hormone correlates better than testosterone in terms of, you know, the results that you're going to get. Right. Cause basically it's like, well, if you're actually training hard, then you release more cortisol because you're demanding more, more energy. Right. Specifically when we're looking at, you know, the amount of muscle tissue you're using, but also the degree of effort, like the relative RPE, RIR that you're taking that, right? So you, you'll notice that training closer to failure produces more cortisol than staying away from it, right? And then just overall volume. So it's, it's related to all of those things that we correlate with mechanical tension, both volume and effort. Now, in terms of, you know, how manipulating, you know, where in the range we're training and stuff can affect volume, it's not just absolute in that, you know, if you do this, you get more and you do this, you get less. Sometimes it's also the order in which you do them. Um, and again, that kind of comes down to what your, what your goal is at the time. So when we look at, we'll say matching uh, strength profile. So basically when we're trying to make an exercise challenging throughout the entire range of motion, that's the most taxing per rep, right? So our tolerance to that volume tends to, tends to go down versus an exercise that was only hard in a portion of its range of motion. So for example, you know, if you did like a regular hack squat, which is hard at the bottom, but then like the top half of the rep is, you know, pretty much a cakewalk until you're to your last couple reps. Right. So other than that, it's pretty much the bottom is the only hard part. Now you bend it band or reverse band it, you use some sort of accommodating resistance and make it so that like, okay, now this rep is now harder for like 80% or 90% of its range of motion. You don't need as many reps, right? You fatigue faster because each rep is more costly, right? And each rep is requiring more recruitment. So you don't need as much volume of that particular exercise, right? And you can't tolerate as much volume, but when you're going for an effect that we'll say maybe is, we'll say really specifically biased towards one position. So say like you really want that stretch mediated hypertrophy, then there may be an instance where maybe you don't use the accommodating resistance, right? Or you use the accommodating resistance, but not as much, right? So that it's still, it's just a softer, you know, descending, uh, resistance curve, if you will, or ascending, depending on which way you look at it, uh, but harder at the bottom, but it's just, it's like, okay, it's still more challenging at the bottom, but it's just not quite as big of a difference, which can be good, especially, especially when you're training closer to failure and stuff, because sometimes having that, we'll say that a little bit of accommodating resistance can really help you maintain control safety technique of the exercise, because when you add in an exercise, like a squat or a hack squat or something where the momentum is magnifying the resistance profile. So if you get fatigued and you start going down a little bit faster, those are compounding each other, making it even harder at the bottom as you're getting into fatigue. And then that's the, the least safe portion of the exercise is, is when you hit the bottom and all the weight is coming down and you have to all of a sudden stop it in reverse action. So there's something to be said about the ability to 
maybe take a set a little bit further if we soften those resistance curves a little bit, right? Or make them a little bit more, a little bit more balanced. Even if our goal is still to tax that muscle in its stretch position the most, basically there's a point of diminishing returns to how extreme we take a resistance profile, meaning that it just has to be biased in the direction enough to, to get that benefit, but making it even more biased than that doesn't necessarily give more benefit. It just make, it just basically means the less, the rest of the rep is maybe less beneficial, if that makes sense. Right now, in terms of eliminating portions of the range of motion, partials and things like that. Um, a lot of times we will, we will use partials for a variety of strategies, right? And you know, volume is always hard to equate because it's like, well, vo volume of what? If we're talking low, if we're talking load volume, that's one thing. If we're talking like, you know, volume of a particular stimulus, that's another thing. Um, we're just talking set volume or rep volume or like all of those things like work kind of differently. So from a principal perspective, what we look at with partials is, you know, can I increase the stimulus in relationship to the amount of work that I'm doing right now, if you want to call that volume, you know, versus just work, that's fine. But, you know, let's say I do a, a, you know, a pause or a quarter rep at the bottom of a squat or a hack squat. I'm just using both of those so that, you know, so that the meatheads and the power lifters both have an exercise in here that they can be happy about. Um, but they're essentially, they're essentially the same here, right? So if you do that, we're essentially accentuating the most challenging and then the most, we'll say hypertrophic portion of that exercise without having to do more reps, right? So I can accumulate more of the stimulus that I'm getting at that bottom in that stretch position by either pausing there or doing a partial there, whether that be like a quarter rep each time, um, or, you know, two quarters, or maybe I do a certain amounts of bottom only reps. And then I do some full reps or et cetera. There's a lot of different ways that you can do that. But essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to take, okay, what is one rep of this exercise and what is the overall stimulus of this? And it's like, how do I bias that to be more of the thing that I'm trying to get out of this exercise? And I can do that by either spending more time or adding partial ranges of motion in the portion of the exercise that is more correlated with my goal. So you do the opposite if it was metabolic. And in this case, I would say, well, we would choose something like a leg extension and it'd be like, okay, now I would either pause at the top or I would do a quarters at the top. Or if I had like a prime machine, I could, you know, manipulate the resistance profile to be there, or I could band or have somebody push. Like I just find a way to say, Hey, I'm focusing on the short position more for this metabolic, you know, benefit to drive that stimulus. So I'm going to try and find a way to either make the resistance curve more biased there or to bias the range of motion there by maybe not going down as far or including partials at the top where I'm going to use time. And I'm just going to use like a two second, you know, isometric hold at the top of, you know, every rep, you know, or something like that. And basically what, what you're doing then is you're saying, Hey, you know, if you want to say six reps of six reps, or if you want to say X amount of pounds is X amount of pounds. What you're saying is for the amount of, you know, reps, sets, and load that I move, I'm shifting the stimulus that I'm getting closer towards what matches the goal for that workout. But it's not necessarily going to say like, well, if you do one, you need more volume and one, you need less volume. The only thing that really decreases, you know, how much volume that you can use is one, if you do a lot of stretch stuff early in the workout, it massively decreases your performance later right? Also, if you take sets closer to failure earlier in the workout, it increases your ability. It increases how much work you can do that 
to do throughout that session. And then if you do exercises that load the entire range of motion with quite a bit of challenge, it just, it just, you just can't tolerate as many of those sets. Right. But you know, if we're saying, if we could actually imagine instead of like volume load, instead of like, we just, you know, looked at how many pounds we moved for reps, imagine that, you know, if we were to be able to draw the resistance curve and actually look at the whole area under that curve. Right. So you'd be like, okay, instead of saying like a rep is X amount of pounds, you would be like, okay, we're correlating how many pounds of torque that is you know, throughout its whole range of motion and getting an actual like representative look at, well, how much work was done in this individual rep, right? Because one rep of a regular hack squat versus one rep of a reverse banded hack squat with the same degree of effort, basically. And we've looked at this too, where it's like, if we basically make it so that the reverse band and the regular hack squat are the same weight at the bottom, right? But then because the reverse band is like giving you more load as you go up, you're doing more volume per rep if we're looking at volume load, right? Because like once you get, you know, 10, 15% up, you might be doing an extra, you know, 50 pounds, you know, 25 kilos there. And then when you get another, you know, 10 or 15 degrees, then you might be doing another, you know, hundred pounds or 50 kilos more than you would in the, the other version. Right. So it's like, in those, it's like, is just because you can do less sets, is it less volume because each rep is more volume load or is it the same? That's where it's like, it kind of, kind of depends. But so if your goal was to use less sets, then using the reverse band would be a great way to be able to accomplish that. So you could use that strategy of like, look, I just need to get more stimulus in less time. That would be one, that would be one, one way to do it. Right. Yeah, no, I think that was a really great, um, explanation especially talking about volume because that is something that's a little bit nebulous as well like comparing a bulgarian split squat to squats i mean like so i guess i'll give myself as an example like i've over the last couple of months i've been switching to a much more low volume uh higher intensity kind of approach and i find i'm able to recover better i'm able to have better frequency and just more consistent performance in general less injured less banged up and so someone will be like oh how many you know, uh, how many, how many set, like if you were to say how many sets are you doing per week, right. On, on lower body, like for legs, I'd be like, okay, well I'm doing about five, you know, and they're like, oh, okay, that's not too bad. But it's like, I'm only doing one squat set and then I'm doing one or two set of leg press. And then I'm doing one or two sets of Bulgarians. And then that's, that's the five, you know, and those all have really different, even fatigue um, outcomes, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what they're actually training. And so I really like how you talked about like area under the curve and it almost kind of seems like a little bit of a puzzle where it's like, okay, maybe I'm lacking here. And so I can kind of use this other exercise to kind of bolster up every area where I can get maximal output for whatever it is that I'm trying to tackle for that day. So, so, uh, I really like that explanation. Actually, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our goal is always to, from an exercise selection standpoint is first, make sure you choose exercises that, you know, are going towards the goal stimulus that you're looking for. And then the next thing is, is that now when you're combining multiple exercises, try and make them complementary. Cause a lot of people, they do, they just don't think at that level of like, they just be like, okay, this is a good exercise. I'm going to use that. This is also a good exercise. I'm going to use that. And then third exercise, this is good exercise. I'm going to do that. And they forget how those three things you know, work together. Right. It's like, okay. It's like, if you were building a house, you wouldn't just like 
bring three plumbers and be like, oh, well, shit, that's not, I mean, I wanted three guys, but you know, three guys that do the same thing, isn't going to build me a house very efficiently. Like I need a guy that can do a foundation and guy that can do the frame. Like you need, you need, you need those specialists. And that's the whole point of doing multiple exercises. Otherwise you would just say, Hey, which one of these exercises is the best? And you would just only do that one. Like the point of doing different exercises is that the qualities of exercise one and exercise two complement each other. They're not the same thing because then you would just say, well, why would I do two exercises that are close to the same when I could just decide which one is a little bit better and then just use that one and throw the other one out. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the issues that I have a lot of the times when people are talking about specificity, because like the way that I look at, at, so like, I don't kind of use myself just for a consistency standpoint. Um, the way that I look at like Bulgarian split squats and leg press for me is their exercise like permitting. So mm-hmm. if I do a bunch of squat sessions, like just actual barbell squats, I'm just completely destroyed. My hips are banged up. My knees are banged up and I feel like crap. Whereas if I get one really good quality top set in, that's a really great stimulus. And then I get a little bit more out of the leg press. And that's where I can get like a lot of like direct work on my quads. And then the Bulgarians kind of keep my hips and my knees healthy so that I can keep squatting. And so they're kind of like performance permitting, I guess is sort of the way that I think of it. Um, and so, so it's like, are they less specific? Yes. But if they allow you to train with a higher degree of, of specificity and they increase performance, then it's like, are they really less specific because they're specifically what you need? So um, yeah, I guess it, it just kind of, is a little bit different from how that conversation is usually had in, in, uh, as far as I've heard it anyways. Yeah. When it comes to athletes, whether they be, you know, skill-based or, you know, just like, like powerlifting based or whatnot. Um, the, the specificity thing is another one of those things has a point of diminishing returns, meaning that like, you don't need all of your exercises to be specific or, 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 or like somehow go towards that movement pattern, right? It's like, all you need is you just need enough activities that maintain the skill component, right. And that are basically going to take any, any strength that you gain in individual tissues, and then basically allow you to use that within that skill. So for you, the threshold of being able to use the benefit that you get from strengthening your legs in the leg press and the Bulgarian split squat Maybe it's like, well, I don't need that many squats to be basically keep the skill of transferring my strength into squat performance, right? But doing more things to like trying to keep everything else close to squat, like is we'll say there's a, the, like, there's a point of diminishing returns where it's like, once you get a certain distance away from specificity, you're better off just saying, fuck it. And just go like, Hey, my goal for this is like, I'm trying to strengthen one of the parts that's it. Like the goal of this exercise isn't to be squat specific, you know, other than the fact that it's strengthening a muscle that I use in the squat. And then I just have to squat enough or do something close enough to the squat that all of these little new, you know, fibers that I gain in this tissue, I will then incorporate into my performance-based squatting pattern. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even from like an injury prevention standpoint, or I guess injury risk management would be maybe be a little bit more accurate, but like, I definitely noticed that ever since, I mean, when I incorporate exercises that are going to improve their like lumbo-pelvic stability, especially in like more of a dynamic sense. So single leg RDLs, contralaterally loaded, ipsilaterally loaded, whatever it might be, they always just feel better. And if they feel better, 
then they can also train for longer without needing a deload. And it might not be drastic in the beginning, but I've definitely noticed a trend where any athlete that I take on, they'll need more deloads initially. And then the longer we train, the less frequent their deloads are and the less aggressive their deloads are just because we're kind of checking those things off, I guess, as they come, if, if that makes sense. So it's like, Hey, I'm feeling a little bit fatigued. Okay. Maybe we don't need to do a deload. Maybe we just drop one set on your squats. Maybe we drop one set on, you know, probably on, on like an assistance exercise because it's going to have maybe less of a total negative impact, but it still is going to drop the, the fatigue a little bit. And, and yeah, like, I don't know. So I guess I don't really have a point with that. That's kind of a random tangent I was going off on, but um, I, I would be interested to hear um, if you have a comment, you can absolutely piggyback on, on, on what I was just saying, I guess. I wasn't sure if you're going to say something. Yeah. I was just going to say that makes perfect sense. You know, cause when you look at exercises that basically like a, in a unilateral exercise, whether it be a, a single leg hip extension or a split squat pattern or whatever it may be versus a bilateral lower body pressing or pulling pattern, right. Is, is that what you're doing is you're opening up freedom of mechanics for the hip. So it's not just that like, you know, you're quote unquote taxing the stabilizers more in those exercises. A lot of it also is, this is like, okay, in a squat pattern, you might take those deep hip muscles only through maybe like, you know, 20% of their range of motion. And it might not even be a very good motion for them because of the constraints provided by doing a bilateral squat pattern or whatever. Right. It's like, well, I mean, let's just be face it. Like nobody ever accused powerlifting of being like, you know, made of the three most biomechanically perfect exercises, really. I mean, basically it's like, you know, it's the competition of, you know, who can jam their joints and their connective tissue the most without it breaking to be able to, you know, basically hack the physics of these lifts. Um, you know, and I mean, that, that's, that's, that's not knocking on powerlifting. Like every sport is like that. You look at a guy, you know, whether it's, you know, soccer, American football, and he's like, you know, cutting and changing directions, like the force is going through his joints or whatever, like they're, they're huge. Right. Um, and so basically great athleticism is the ability to use all of, all of that stuff, you know, and push the boundaries of performance before basically breakdown. Um, you know, so when you're, when you're doing that stuff, you know, a big portion of that is, is like, Hey, if we go back to the range of motion thing, this is like those exercises are allowing you to now expose that tissue to maybe more specific and greater range of motion, which is then going to increase its capacity to keep up with the things that are getting the larger stimulus in the squat. Right. Right. Because I mean, your, your deep hip rotators, your psoas, like all, all of these things that are so important for, you know, stability, maintaining that stuff. It'd be like, it would be like, okay, so you, you, you wouldn't be like, all right, I want to make sure that my triceps are good for my bench. And you wouldn't go over and do like 10 degree tricep extensions, right? Like, you know, a 10th of a, you wouldn't just train like a 10th of a rep that was like specific to the bench, right? You would still, you would go through a decent degree of elbow flexion and elbow extension. You would try and load that whole thing. And you're just basically applying that same stuff to the hip. And so basically the better your accessories are and whatnot at a, you know, at accommodating for those things. Again, this gets back to that complementary stuff, right? So it's sometimes we got to think past, you know, glutes, quads, hams, you know, erectors and think of like, well, okay, what are these, what are these other little things that maybe I need to sprinkle in here enough so that they get enough range of motion, you know, or enough stimulus that they don't become now the bottlenecks from a performance perspective. Cause essentially when we're looking at something like a, a squatter, you know, whatever it may be, right. Is, 
you know, these, these, these compound movements is your body is solving the problem of lifting that weight with a ton of different muscles across a ton of different joints. And essentially, you know, as you start to fatigue, every, like the reps change. Like if you watch somebody do a heavy set of four, right? not a single one of those reps will be exactly the same. And it'll be even more different if that you like go up into like six or eight or whatever. And you look at basically how the body is adapting to fatigues in certain areas. Right. And you'll see like, well, okay. The amount of knee versus hip translation and all that stuff, there'll just be all these subtle little changes. Some are easier, some are harder to see because, you know, we can hide a lot of things with intent based cues of like knees out and whatever else that you're doing, but internally those forces are changing. And so, you know, what you want to do is you want to give your body the ability to use the most efficient tissue for as long as possible before it has to start going to, you know, secondary, you know, or tertiary tissues to start making up for the loss of force production in some of those primary tissues. And that extends beyond the prime movers, but it also is the prime stabilizers that are allowing those prime movers to efficiently move that joint. Because the way I like to think of it is, is you know, you might have your quads, you know, being the thing that's like, that's like the golf club, you know, hitting the ball off the tee. That's your quad, right? It's this, it's, it's what basically is smacking that ball, driving it's all the power, driving it out. But the rest of the things are the thing holding and balancing the tee right now, how much slower would you have to swing the club if the ball was moving a little bit because you had to time it right. So you would, you would have to reduce the power in your swing to be able to make up for the extra skill and coordination needed to hit a slightly wobbling or tipping ball. Right. And so even though the, like those small muscles are not the limiter in terms of force production, if we were just to look at what is their capacity, but as they do fatigue, they do limit the output because basically they decrease our ability to use those prime movers. Right. And so, that's, I just, I'm just trying to provide a little bit of rationale behind, you know, the anecdote that you represented and be like, yeah, we see that exact same thing, you know, and that just puts the importance on, you know, Hey, you have to like, you have to make sure that you don't neglect the things that aren't as sexy, you know, for this lift, you know, so God, God forbid that, you know, if you're a champion power lifter that you might do some ABA deduction exercises or some single leg exercises, or you might even train calves and tibialis every once in a while. Like, you know, <laughs> bigger calves make, make it easier to come out of the bottom of the squat. So I've heard. Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny. There's, it's funny how there still is kind of like a stigma with certain things like that though. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, I think that was a great explanation. So when it comes to, range of motion there there's a couple interesting i guess like kind of pieces of context and i know i keep kind of coming back to this but it's sort of because i i really feel like no one really does this conversation justice in terms of going into like a bunch of different um sort of contextual differences so one thing that kind of came up and this is actually based on conversation i had uh i think yesterday or maybe today with a client um during during a check-in where essentially they were like um, getting cued from someone at their gym and they were like, Oh, well, like I deadlift like this. And I was like, well, do you have any problems deadlifting how you are? And it's like, no, I'm like, okay, have you been making really great progress? They're like, no, like, okay, you're probably fine. Then don't change it. (laughs) You know? And, uh, and essentially the cue was talking about like trying to get them to 
feel their hamstrings a little bit more. And I was like, okay, like, I think that makes sense. And I think the cue and the advice and all of that stuff makes sense. I just don't necessarily think it's applicable to here. But a lot of the times, I think the reason why, you know, my, my athlete in particular was, was sort of questioning this was they were like, well, you're right. I don't really feel my hamstrings when I'm deadlifting, you know? And, you know, it, I don't necessarily know that you, I don't think I've ever felt my hamstrings when I'm deadlifting. Um, but I don't know that you have to, or that really makes a difference. And then that kind of segues into like, you know, looking at RDLs, stiff legs and, and different execution strategies of those. So it's like, if you have, um, like I used to chronically extend my low back when, when I was squatting and, and deadlifting and all that stuff. And unsurprisingly, I dealt with tons and tons of back pain issues and had a couple of injuries. And then once I learned, you know, better bracing mechanics, I was able to handle more load do more, not get injured, not have the same kind of pain. And so I shifted from an extended position where there was, you know, more length at, at the muscle, I guess, to a shorter position, but I was able to handle more load and I was able to train the muscle, feel it maybe a little bit less or maybe a lot less, I guess, in some cases, but in my opinion, presented a way better stimulus for me. And so I wanted to kind of get your perspective on like how that might change uh, how the range of motion might change, how like maybe your pelvis orientation, we can, we can stick with the RDL example, I guess, or you can kind of take it wherever you want, but does this sort of make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like, if, like when we're talking about, you know, extending the lumbar, right? So, I mean, if we're extending the lumbar, we're shortening the erectors, right? And now muscles as they shorten, they tend to go towards the direction of losing a little bit of contractile force, right? Their, their total force production tends to decrease as they get towards the shorter position. And then because you get the passive stuff coming along there, they tend to be a little bit stronger in the more lengthened position, right? If we're talking pure contractile strength, you could argue that maybe it's a little bit more in the short position. A lot of people will reference, you know, a curve that, you know, everybody, you know, that's ever Googled, like, you know, length tension relationship, they see like the bell curve looking thing um, where it shows that like, all right, a sarcomere like has its most strength in the middle and then it drops off. But that's not really representative of what's going on in the human body. That's a sarcomere cut out of the body. And so basically those points of drop off on the end are, we'll say things that don't happen in real life, right? They're like, we don't take the sarcomeres to that level of stretch or to shortening. So really what we use is probably closer to like, you know, the middle two thirds of that diagram that you will commonly see. So if we're looking at your spine, for example, right, we got this chain, right? Your hamstrings are coming up and attaching to the pelvis, right? To try and pull the hip into extension, but then the erectors are going to attach to the pelvis and then to your spine to bring your torso up with it. So that when your hamstrings pull, you don't just round your back, but you actually lift your body, you know, and the bar. So a lot of the, one of the things to look at when we're looking at technique and range of motion is how do we make sure that we remove remove something that isn't supposed to be the limiter from being the limiter, right? So if the goal of an RDL is to train your hamstrings, your glutes, your adductor magnus, like all of those big hip extensors and not tax the back, what we want is we want the erectors to have the best mechanical advantage that they possibly have. So basically 
per, per the amount of load you're doing, they're doing the least amount of work. And that's where it's like getting closer to neutral is a little bit better because essentially what we're doing is we're putting those erectors in, we'll say a more mechanically advantageous position, right? And so that means they don't have to work as hard, right? And the hamstrings and the glutes and the adductors, basically, if they're now having to work harder, what we want is failure happens because the hip extensors are tired, not because the low back is tired, right? And then the other thing that you have in there is you have the psoas, which is such an important muscle, right? Because it is, you know, people, it's like, it's a, they're like, oh, the psoas is a hip flexor, right? It, you know, lifts the, lifts the leg up, but it's also a spinal extensor, right? And, but it's not a spinal extensor. Like when people think of a sp spinal extensor, they think of like pulling their body backwards, like falling, falling back. Right. But it's a spinal extensor by pulling the lumbar forward. And that, what that essentially does is it gives the erectors a bit of an arch, right? So it changes the structural mechanics for them. So that actually it's like, it's like the equivalent of giving them a better mechanical advantage of holding you up. Right. So basically if we have a little bit of an arch there, the erectors have a pretty good mechanical advantage because they have that mechanical arch to be holding you up. Right. As you go into a tiny bit of flexion, then you have a different force now, basically, which is like lengthening the muscle. And then you have the vertebrae force, which is basically pushing, we'll say like pushing laterally on the erectors, which is then giving you a different type of mechanical advantage as you go into slight flexion. But if you go into too much of an extreme of either of those, all of a sudden our force capacity goes way down and that's where the erectors would become a limiter. So if you're really extending the lumbar, well, then the muscle is shortened and that basically, and the arch benefit is now being negated by the fact that you're just in too much of a shortened erector position. Right. And so you, those are going to burn out and they're going to become the limiter of your exercise. And that's where all the strain is going to go. Right. And if you think of it, if you're managing load and the things that manage your spine fatigue, now all of that stress it's going to be, you're going to try and pick that up with all of the small spinal muscles to like survive, you know, whatever partial of a rep or another rep or, or whatever. Right. And so basically what you want is if you imagine that you could put like an RPE or an RIR across all of the muscles that are active, you would want like hamstrings, glutes, adductors, or whatever. We would want those things to be getting to RPE 10 and you'd want the rectors to still be at like RPE seven. So that's why it's like, okay, how do I find the position where the erectors are so mechanically advantaged that they're not going to be the limiter in that exercise. And sometimes you simply actually have to train that. Like, so for instance, if you take somebody that's done a lot of non-spinal loading leg training, meaning they've done a ton of leg presses, they've done a ton of leg curls, like hack squats, all this stuff, but they never load the spine. There may actually be a period where it's like, look, you can't take an RDL or a deadlift or a squat, you know, to the same degree of failure, because basically you have gotten your lower body so strong that even with optimal mechanics, the erectors are still the, the limiter there. And basically we don't want to push your spine to the point of your legs. So in that person, it might be like, well, we need to do basically, we'll say lower RPE or lower effort spinal loaded exercises, and then progress that up until it can then keep up with the demands of your hip extensors, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely does. Um, and in terms of the, like the mind muscle connection, 
mm-hmm. and feeling that obviously it's going to be very different from uh, a strength perspective. Like as far as I'm aware, internal cues tend to actually have like a lower, um, lower effectiveness for, for strength athletes in terms of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seems like they're pretty good for, uh, to some degree for, for bodybuilders who are really looking to, to train their muscles, especially in prior, like even, even if they are going like full exercise range of motion, really making sure at particular points, they're kind of biasing. Like I've seen people do like a single, single arm lat pull down or single arm row or something like that, and really get like a good, you know, little bit of lateral flexion on that as well. So, um, can you kind of touch on that? Yeah. So I, I prefer to define mind muscle connection more as control rather than feeling right. than sensation. Right. So mind muscle connection should be, well, if it's the mind connected to the muscle, that means that the mind has control over the muscle sensation is just like, okay, you're getting feedback from the muscle. Right. And the majority of our, of our sensation is negative feedback, right? Think of it, think of it as, is like the majority of the sensation we feel is more of the check engine light than it is like, Hey, everything is going well. Uh, you know, and that, that, that's good because you wouldn't want to be distracted by getting feedback all the time when everything was functioning as it's supposed to, our nervous system is supposed to alert us when we need to change something, right? Like take your hand off of the stove, right? That's what, that's what our sensory system is for. It's not meant to be like, Hey man, we're producing 207 newtons in the bicep right now. Like that, that's not what the, that's, that's not what the nervous system is there to do. Right. Which is why it's like, you know, you know, it's your brain has a really hard time quantifying the difference between curling a 25 pound, you know, dumbbell versus a 45 pound dumbbell until it gets hard. Then it's like, okay, now I can, now I, now I really know that things are working. Right. But it's not like you could tell me how many fibers are working when you're holding 25 pounds versus, you know, 40 pounds, you could say whether it feels heavy or not. Right. But really, you know, your bicep is working when you're using either of those weights and you're getting closer to fatigue. Right. And so that's, that's what you're feeling is you're feeling the sensations that are coming across, you know, with fatigue. So first thing I will say is that sensation is not necessarily the thing that you should chase. Right. So the, and the average person will say has a really hard time discerning from negative feedback and positive feedback and negative feedback tends to be a higher sensation than positive feedback. And then in terms of the feedback that we get, we tend to really only get that feedback under three scenarios, fully shortened muscle, like an extreme shortening and extreme lengthening or fatigue. Like those are the things that really cause us to like really feel that we're utilizing something. Right. But like the, the example that I'll always give people is just like, if you're sitting here listening to this, if you just take one arm and you bend your elbow at 90 degree and you take your other arm, and put it over your wrist, like you're essentially going to brace it. And then you curl into your opposite hand. You'll notice that like the tension that you feel in your bicep is very small, even though you can contract like as hard as you can. And that's because at that point, there's no reason for your body to send you like some big, like, you know, Oh, look at all this feelings we're having. And it's like, no, if the bicep's doing what it's supposed to do, then you're barely going to feel that it's not going to feel like it would, if you were to bring your arm overhead and squeeze your bicep, or if you were to stretch your arm behind you and then squeeze your bicep, because you would be feeling the sensation that comes with either the fully shortening for the lengthening. Um, so when it comes to using cues, the, the internal cue, right? Essentially, if we use an internal cue, that means that we're trying to get the body to do something that it isn't intuitively doing in response to the resistance. Uh, 
And this is why it's not good for strength because in strength, what we want the nervous system to be doing is to be acting as efficiently as possible on the resistance. So basically if we add an internal cue, we are likely actually going to take away from force production, right? Unless we are, we have the hubris to basically think that we know better than all the years of evolution and all the years of adaptation that we've been alive and our nervous system has figured out how to use our body that we're like, no, but this cue I learned on Instagram, that's going to be the thing that changes everything for me. I know better. Right. And so now I'm going to corkscrew my feet or whatever the hell it is. It's like, no, actually, if you just get really good at understanding the direction of force that you need to apply and you just do that, like it's more of an external cue, your body's going to do the most efficient thing. It's never going to say, Hey, let's find a harder way to do this, right? It, no, it's going to use your, it's going to use your levers. It's going to use all of your tissues in the most efficient way possible to move that load. And the more you practice that, the more efficient it's going to be at managing that. And you'll actually see when they look at like, basically once you get to like an 80%, you know, load that there's no, there's no improvement in terms of um, EMG amplitude, right? When they, at, when you try to add intent. If anything, if anything, it will actually take away sometimes because it reduces force production. So I would say that when you look at bodybuilding and people are like, they're using those internal cues, what they're able to do is they're able to put band-aids on shitty technique because they're using a lower threshold and be like, okay, if I just pull on this, my body's going to use whatever's the best. But if I'm trying to target my lats, if the load's light enough, I can consciously contract more lats. And what my body will do is it will basically figure out how to contract other things to accommodate that and still make the movement not look like complete fuckery. Right. But what would be better is if they just had good setup and good technique so that the neurological solution would be to use the target tissue the most, if that makes sense. So instead of trying to think of all the different ways to cue your lat contraction, the best thing to do would be like, how do I make sure that I set this up so that basically the resistance is in such a way that my body's going to be like, dude, this is so good for lats. I'm going to use my lats for this because that's the most effective and efficient solution to overcome that resistance. And then you don't have to think about anything. You don't have to be doing mental gymnastics while you're doing your pull down. You can pretend you're a power lifter and you can just grab it, you know, grip it and rip it. And you'll use your lat because it was the most, it was the most effective tool for the job. But if you have those inefficiencies in the way that you're setting up or, or your technique, or you're just, you know, choosing shitty exercises, you can still get a pump in another muscle. If you just have the conscious ability to just contract it. But essentially what you're doing then is you are posing that muscle simultaneously while doing an exercise, if that makes sense. And it does not produce as much growth in like remote, because if you think of it, as you get closer to failure, your ability to do that, like when you get to where the reps, the reps should be effective, where you should be getting that mechanical tension stimulus, your body's going to say, screw your cues, dude. Like if you want to move that load, we're not using that other thing that you were just trying to, you know, Jedi mind trick us into using, we're going to use the things that have to be used. And that's where the majority of the stimulus is going to end up going. Yeah. And so I guess an example of that would be just, I mean, even just changing a certain level of inclination of, of your torso in like a lap pull down or something yep. like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's kind of funny actually, because I've seen that, I mean, I train at a private club and the guys in my gym are pretty, pretty damn strong. <laughs> um, 
like if you squat 600 pull over seven and then bench in the fours you're like kind of average you know and so you don't really see a whole lot of like just nonsense but there have been a handful of times where i've had to go to a commercial gym and i'll see guys who like they'll start their workout with like front laterals and they'll go to side laterals then they'll go to reverse flies and then they'll go to you know I don't know, another exercise. And it's just everything they're doing, they're just doing really, really lightweight and how they're prioritizing exercise selection and sequence just seems a little off. But then the entire time they're like, yeah, but you really feel the muscle. And it's like, well, if I flex my arm as hard as I can and just hold it there for long enough, I'm going to feel it. But I seriously doubt that anyone would agree that that's going to present the most robust stimulus for, for muscle growth or strength or really anything outside of looking stupid, <laughs> really. Um, yeah, I I think that's one of the red flags. Anytime somebody coins an exercise of like, Hey, this exercise is only good for high reps. I'm like, that means that exercise sucks. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's, that's actually a great point. I, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say that to me, but again, I guess we, we hang out in different circles, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. That wouldn't really make any sense logically why it would only be effective under like very, very specific conditions. Um, yeah, so to be honest, actually, we, we kind of got through most of the stuff that, uh, that I wanted to talk about. Was there anything that I guess that you wanted to mention to, to just kind of close out that maybe we didn't touch on? I mean, the theme here is range of motion. And, you know, I think we covered like the, the big portions of it. I mean, you said you do a lot of like research review stuff or whatnot. And I think, you know, if we look at the message that is currently conveyed is that the consensus is that like, Oh, well, full range is, is, is better. And it just like that phrase has just been like blindly like regurgitated, like, well, the consensus of the research is that full range is better. Um, and I think that, you know, the, if you look at the research and you look at it in a more nuanced way, you will see that like, that's not exactly what it says. And there's some patterns in there and that there's a lot more to be done. And I think, We've had two or three recent studies now that have showed that like, you know, there are conditions where a partial rep is better for hypertrophy than the, than a, than, than a full rep, at least in, in the isolated fashion. Like one was uh, using uh, a leg extension where they did like, you know, they did a full range and a partial at the bottom and then a partial, like it wasn't, it wasn't all the way at the top. It was like, like, but close to the, close to the short position. Uh, if you will. Right. And they're like, Oh, then it's like, Oh, the partial at the bottom is, was, was, was better for hypertrophy. And then basically you had everybody on social media saying, Oh, okay. So I'm just only going to do, you know, partials of leg extension. And a couple things that I would like to say to anybody that like that, that looks at that research um, or that listens to people talking about it is one, the general consensus is that you want to make sure that if you're that if you're going to utilize a partial range of an exercise that one, it's either where that exercise is, you know, more challenging or where that exercise just happens to contribute better to your goal. Right. Cause the goal isn't always just hypertrophy. And then also make sure that you take into account the context of the exercise as it, as it sits with the other exercises that you do. So the other great example of this is the line versus seating leg curl debate, right? Cause you know, there's that one study that shows like, okay, they just did, either you just did lying leg curls or you just did seated leg curls, seated leg curl works more of a lengthened position. So no surprise that it was the better of the two for hypertrophy, but let's take, for example, 
the fact that you probably don't just do a leg curl and that's all of the hamstring work that you do. You probably are doing some sort of a hinge, whether that's a 45 hinge, whether it's an RDL stiff leg, you know, whatever that you, whatever you want to call a, you know, a hinge movement where you keep the knee relatively straight. That is also going to train the hamstrings in a relatively lengthened position. So this gets back to like, well, complementary exercises, because while, you know, a seated leg curl on its own may outperform a lying leg curl for hypertrophy. What that doesn't what that doesn't say is, is that if we combined, you know, an RDL with either of those leg curls, that the seated leg curl and RDL would be a better combination than a seated leg curl and a lying leg curl. Cause if we talk, if we're looking at the muscle as a whole and its entire range of motion, the lying leg curl is more complementary to the RDL. Right. And so I just want to make sure that like, when, if you guys are looking at like, okay, how much range of motion should I do? Well, you should do the range of motion that correlates to your goal. Right. And then you should make sure if you're using multiple exercises that you try and use those multiple exercises to either increase the amount of range of motion you're training that muscle in through a session, or you're at least trying to load it in slightly different points, right? Cause if we look at one exercise, one variable, what we're going to get is we're going to get the same data for all of exercise. And it's like, well, you should do all exercises all the same. They should all just be partials in their lengthened, you know, positions. And that would be like the, we would get that. And then basically all like you'd have every bodybuilder now would only be doing partials and lengthened positions of all of their exercises. And they would probably be getting really shitty results. And they would probably have like, you know, no mobility and tons of pain and all that shit, like after, you know, a very short period of time. Right. So you have to look at the, you know, the total effect that you're going to get, you know, from these exercises and whatnot. So I would say that's just the caveat that I like to throw out there in terms of the things that I see people will say mucking up or, or just, just simply not being mindful of when they're looking at the data on range of motion. I don't know if that carries a your, your thoughts any further or not? No, that definitely makes sense. And I mean, there's always a bit of a disconnect when, when research comes out and is kind of discussed on social media. I remember when uh, some of the research talking about how there doesn't appear to be any sort of relationship between exercise technique and injury. I was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Anyone yeah. who's been lifting for like literally a week knows that that's ridiculous. Um, and it's like, yeah, so I don't know. There, there's a certain level of like, sometimes sometimes if you just kind of think about it and you're like, does this make sense? Well, maybe. And it's like, okay, do I actually see this happening ever? Has this ever happened or ever been part of my training or anyone else's training? It's like, no. It's like, why not? Well, I don't know. And you're like, okay, now I'm a little bit skeptical. <laughs> you know, so so that, that definitely makes sense. But um, yeah, no, it was, it was awesome. Really, really great conversation. Um, I think you brought up a ton of really great points and kind of elucidated on, on several things that uh, don't necessarily get as much attention. Um, I still haven't dove enough into a lot of your content as much as I would have liked. I've been crazy busy lately, but uh, every time I do, I find it really interesting. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to jump on the podcast and chat. No, it's been a good time. Where can people find you, man? So we're, we're everywhere. We're on YouTube, we're on Instagram and, uh, for at least for the time being, I'm even trying that whole TikTok thing that, you know, all the, all the kids are raving about. Right. Um, so we're, we're, we're expanding, we're trying to be diverse and hit everybody. Um, you know, but yeah, that the, basically I have two companies and one education is where we talk about, you know, the complex, the nuanced things that's geared towards 
you know, trainers and people that really want to take, you know, this to the next level. Um, but if you're younger, you know, or just looking for more simple stuff, uh, our N1 training brand is where we have our exercise library where, you know, that's going to teach you how to set up exercises, you know, if there are appropriate cues, how to use them, uh, et cetera. Right. So you can, you can find both of those on YouTube and TikTok. It is just M1 education. Cause that's as much of those two platforms that I can tolerate on Instagram. It's both. Um, and what I would say guys is, is that, uh, you know, if you really, really like this stuff and you, you enjoy listening to these podcasts and stuff like that, one, you can go on to uh, our YouTube and there's a playlist of, of all of these discussions, uh, and whatnot. But I would, I would say that, you know, a lot of times everybody likes to toot their, you know, own horn and say where they're at. Um, but what I'd say is, is the most important message I can give you guys is just that, you know, regardless of who you're learning from, just never stop. Just keep going. Awesome, man. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes. Make sure you check them out. Uh, Cast them again. Thanks so much, man. It was, it was awesome chatting. All right. Thank you. You have a good one.